It's Monday, January 28th. Welcome to the Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Hidden Gems, Chief Investment Officer here at the Motley Fool, Andy Cross. Happy Monday, guys. Hi, Chris. Happy Monday. Uh, we're going to talk Barnes & Noble. We're going to talk men's apparel retail, because we're fashionable guys. And when Jason I, wore his shirt. And when yeah, I say we, I basically mean Andy. Yeah. Andy actually looks like you know a, a grown-up today. Radio, uh, right? Uh, we're going to start like with one of the big Dow stocks, and that's Caterpillar. Fourth quarter earnings came in better than expected. Shares up about 2% this morning. Uh, but Jason, uh, the, what's getting the headline today, the big headline, is the fact that net income for the quarter fell by a half due to China, and it's really two things in China. One is sort of slower growth, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but it's this this write-down they had to do uh, of a deal that, that really just didn't work out the way they wanted it to. Yeah, that's really concerning. I, I mean, it's it's interesting to see the market's reaction today and that with the stock being up. This wasn't a surprise. I mean, we had seen news out on this for a while, but it was essentially, it was, it was a Chinese acquisition that the, the worst part about this is that you the management with Caterpillar gets up there and they they say we we really went through this and did our due diligence uh, before making this acquisition. But I mean, the fact of the matter is that what what they apparently have on their hands here is is a a multi year intentional accounting fraud situation. That yeah, I mean, it's knocked more than half of this acquisition uh, essentially off the books, which is very concerning. So it was a good quarter, but when you add in uh, this write down, that certainly uh, hit hit earnings big time. Now the reason why they made this acquisition was because so much of their business is outside of the United States, and and when I say so much, I mean essentially seventy percent of their business is outside of the United States, and trying to take advantage of those emerging economies in places like China and India, and we see a company much smaller company, but but similar in what they do, Joy Global, trying to do much of the same. Uh, but with Caterpillar here today, I mean they they it was a decent quarter. Their their concerns with Europe slowing down with China slowing down. So guidance for the coming year is is tepid. Uh, but, you know, it's really concerning that they would let this kind of an acquisition go through. It kind of reminds you of the whole Microsoft write down gate, too. You just you got to wonder what they're thinking when they're doing their due diligence. And this still happens. I mean, what's the over under on how many concerns with accounting uh, issues in China will we see in 2013? Well, I think a lot of that is already yeah. being kicked out because yeah. Joy Global recently made an acquisition of a mining company in China to gain exposure there. Uh, now, they have not had any such write-down yet. I hope that doesn't happen. I'm a shareholder of Joy Global myself. But but it, it certainly is now a question. I mean, we, we have to kind of wonder, is that something that's coming down the pipe for Joy Global or any of these other companies, General Electric, who's looking yeah. to get more into this space? I mean, it's it's really yeah, concerning. Yeah, that news broke last year, and we're going to see it continue in 2013. But I'm that's sure. the thing that's kind of terrifying because it's one thing to – to, uh, as an investor, to say, you know what, some of these small to mid-cap Chinese companies, I'm not going to invest in them even though they look yeah. attractive because I just think, I, I, I feel like I yeah. can't trust the accounting. It's another thing to look at, in this case, a Dow stalwart, yeah. a company that comes out, and we have, I think we should just take them at their word that they said, no, 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 we really did our homework on this one. And they still essentially got duped. Yeah, I mean that's and that's that's the risk. That's an inherent risk in investing. I mean, in, in investing in stocks and in common stocks, there's no guarantee. We're not buying a bond here. Things like this can come up. We saw it happen last year with the big four, big five accounting firms and the challenges they have in China. This is one reason why, Chris, why you cannot, no matter what you do, put all your eggs in one basket. Diversify your portfolio. Have a bundle of stocks out there across industries, across market caps. If you're putting all your eggs into one or two or three stocks, even if you think you know those well, 
there's always a chance that something like this can happen that's outside your control. Yeah, and I think for, for everyone out there listening who hears us time and time again uh, recognize acquisitions as a risk as opposed to an opportunity with, with acquisitive companies, it's generally a risk first and foremost. This is a perfect example of what that risk is. Uh, I mean, acquisitions, yes, can add to growth, and when they're done well, they can certainly uh, strengthen a company's competitive advantage. But when you have companies that are making acquisitions, this type of stuff happens. And when it's an acquisition of a company that is not uh, in our you know domestic markets here, that, that risk is certainly enhanced, and, and this is just a, a manifestation of that risk that we always talk about. I will so. say, the stock, Jason mentioned the stock is up a little bit. There is that sense that, okay, we got this out. This right. is out now. We're resetting back on terra firma, looking towards 2013. They took took some caution looking into the year, thinking the latter half of the year better than the first half of the year. So I think investors are kind of thinking, okay, great. I heard from one of the major Dow companies here, huge international play here. I'm hearing what they're hearing or seeing, and the fact that they are now have taken this this right down, maybe they've gotten it out of their system and look forward to 2013. And Jason, you mentioned their guidance. I mean, one of the things they came out and said was they think that in 2013, conditions are going to get better everywhere but Europe, right. which, which I'm just like, I mean- I, I think it, we're going to be hearing that a lot. I was just going to say, are we now in year, what, four or five of just Europe being this- Risk, enormous risk factor for companies. Well, for like the last four years or so, we were kind of that risk factor. So that it's just kind of working its way around the globe. You're saying Uh, you're saying I I, I live in a glass house and I should put down the brick. Well, no, I think we're almost. I mean, I think we we've gotten out of the worst of of our situation. But I do think it's worth noting. I mean, let's be very clear. Caterpillar is is somewhere in the neighborhood of a seventy billion dollar company, so it's huge. Now, this is a five hundred eighty million dollar write down. In the grand scheme of things, it's a drop in the bucket. It's not a big deal for them financially speaking. But it is something that you have to look at and wonder, how was this call made? Where was the judgment? What was this due diligence process? And so I, th- I think that it's longer term implications like this that you really got to pay attention to. But yeah, I, I think that they are looking for, generally speaking, uh, strengthening global economy. They're talking about 2013, the first half maybe being a little bit weaker than the second half. But overall, I mean, Caterpillar has a lot of reach around the world, and mm-hmm. so this is a big company that does a lot of things, and uh, and and they're going to be okay. And we saw the slowdown in emerging markets kind of last year. So the fact that they are looking forward to um, getting things right in Asia, and Asia being such an important market, more important to them this year than than Europe is, that to me is a good sign. That at least the at least things are looking up over in Asia than down. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that Barnes and Noble plans to shut down 20 stores per year over the next decade, uh, leaving them with roughly one, uh, basically shutting down about one-third of their current locations. Uh, Barnes & Noble has, in the interim, come out with a statement saying, essentially, they have not adjusted their store closing plan whatsoever. This is not news. Um, Andy, what do you make of this? It seems like news. It seems like news. I mean, like, fact of the matter is, is you have Barnes & Noble that is just continually trying to get things right in a very tough environment. When you're selling books and you're getting totally Amazoned every day, you have to do something. I do applaud them for at least looking out 10 years and thinking about a long-term strategy. I hope yep. they have it for shareholders because obviously they're operating in a very tough environment in a very, very amazingly competitive um competitor in Amazon, and if they're not thinking about getting their cost structure right, given the fact that they have so many stores out there in an online world, um, 
they they uh, they will face a tough tough sledding here if they don't uh, don't take this action. Why is this plan taking so long? Because I look at this and say, you know what? If you can already identify locations that you think you need to shut down, twenty per year seems too slow. Is it just? It, does it all boil down to their lease obligations? Well, yeah, I, yeah. I think I mean like closing down stores, especially this amount, is not like pulling weeds out of your garden here. I mean, like it's not something you just go out there and rip out one day. Um, in the course of a morning, we're talking about a, a, a lot of stores. They have a lot of operating lease commitments that they have to live up to. Um, so they have to get out of those lease commitments. There may be challenges with those lease commitments. Those those as as tenants, maybe all, often anchor tenants, the realtor, the the real estate folks aren't uh, really willing to give up those leases so easily. So there's a challenge there when you're talking about this amount of volume to get out of those leases, and then they have all the employee costs as well too to go into it. Uh, Jason, uh, I think the last time we were talking about Barnes and Noble, it was that their Nook sales uh, were lower than they were hoping for, and yet what they were finding was that it seems to work as a device, to, uh, as a consumption device. So the whole razor and blade model that we've talked about with Amazon and the Kindle that appears to be working for Barnes and Noble. Um, but I see a story like this, and it makes me think. It's probably not working well enough, fast enough for them. No, I don't think it is. And I'm a little bit torn here because as a, as a parent, I love the physical presence of, of a Barnes & Noble around the neighborhood because I think it's a lot of fun to be able to take your kids to a bookstore like that and let them look around at books and read. And Browsing whatnot. is a lot more fun in a bookstore no than question. on Amazon. No question. And even my, my girls have both said, I mean, they, they – really enjoy reading a physical book. Uh, but with that said, I mean, that model is just being phased out. Now, there is going to be, I think, at least a, a demand for that retail presence, uh, albeit much smaller than I think what Barnes & Noble has been used to for for uh, the past decade or so. But yeah, they're, they're getting essentially passed by on the device front. And you have companies like Amazon and others have done so well uh, basically coming out with a compelling enough device that reels you into their ecosystem and, and gets you to buy that content on that device. And Barnes Noble's trying to to sort of compete there to a degree. I mean, we see them offering, I guess, a streaming product and mm-hmm. videos and stuff like that. But the problem is that they were already beaten to this punch, yeah. and it's really difficult to get someone, to get a consumer to change their behavior once they're so used to a particular kind of behavior. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Yeah, I mean, I'll buy my books from Amazon, and if I want to take my daughter to browse someplace, I'll take her to the library. There you go. <laughs> um, we talked about this uh, right after Facebook went public, and I, I think at that time people were looking at the numbers of Facebook, and one of the points that got raised was, look, maybe Facebook is going to be a successful company, a profitable company, but just a smaller company than we had thought when it was private. Is that the way forward for Barnes & Noble? That, And I know we're not talking about an enormous company. I think the market cap is somewhere in the neighborhood of $800 million, yeah. something like that. But if they pull this off, if instead of you know however many locations they have now, it's, I think it's around 600, that 10 years from now they've got 400, but they're more profitable. Is it possible that that's the way forward for Barnes & Noble, where they're just like, yeah, we're a profitable, smaller company? Yeah, I mean, they they do more than $7 billion in revenue. So while, while, it's, a, while it's an $800 million company, the amount of revenue they do is substantial. They are selling a lot of things. I think for Barnes & Noble and for a lot of companies out there, we actually saw a lot of companies do take some very aggressive actions coming out of the financial crisis to get thin, to basically get very efficient. And I think for Barnes & Noble, it's even more magnified because of the competitive pressures that they are seeing in every com- competitor, but really from Amazon, the fact that the product they are selling, that they 
best known for can be so quickly, easily sold over the internet rather than sold in a bookstore. So for for me, it's like they have to get that strategy in place to be able to compete if they want to be that. And they very may, may well be a much smaller company than Amazon. And that's okay as long as they're more profitable. Do you think this uh, hastens the move to this company going private? Do you think that Richard Scholl's the... Uh, oh, no, wait. That's Best Buy. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> well, it could, but you know, it really is interesting when you think about companies like this that have to make very big strategic decisions. Decisions Being private is a lot easier to do that than being at right. the whims of shareholders. Late on Friday, Joseph A. Bank said that profits for fiscal year 2012 uh, will be 20% lower than the previous year. Among those getting the blame for this lower profit, Jason, Hurricane Sandy, the presidential election, the fiscal cliff, and the ever-popular unseasonably warm weather. It almost makes <laughs> Not surprisingly, <laughs> shares down 18% this morning. It almost makes you feel like they just had one of those wheels. They were spinning one of those wheels, and whatever it lands on, that's going to be what the excuse is. And they just thought, well, one excuse isn't going to really cut it, so let's come up with a few, right? Did they have so, the hockey season in there as one of the reasons, too? <laughs> the, um, uh, no, but I, I just... Well I mean, people need to wear those heavy state, coats right, to go exactly. into those ice rinks. I mean, just, throw it uh, in there. I don't think it's in here. No. No, Joseph A. Banks to me is one of those, or Joseph A. Bank, whatever. It's just one of those ones that is, you know, we always make fun of it as being the buy one suit, get eight pairs of shoes and a shirt for every day of the week for free. And Mm -hmm. and you wonder what in the world, how do they make money doing this? And and we were talking about this at the beginning of of, uh, before we started taping today. Their, Their strategy is to... They start with higher markups. In other words, they mark everything up higher than everyone else anyway. So then when you walk into the store and you maybe buy a suit or a shirt or something that's more expensive, then they can give you those other little items, make you feel like you've been given something. The problem with that is – and when you look at something like a suit, for example, I think most people – when they buy a suit, they, they kind of want to walk out there feeling pretty good. Yeah. You know, I mean, it makes me think of the office that was just on recently where they were in there trying to sell paper to this Italian suit maker. And Dwight went in with like this 100% acrylic suit. The guy asked him <laughs> if the suit came with a fire extinguisher. <laughs> but, I mean, you, you kind of wonder, I mean, is Joseph A. Bank not giving you those kinds of things? When you give away things like that, it tarnishes your brand. I mean, if Tiffany gave you a ring for every bracelet that you bought, would you kind of think twice about how meaningful it really is? And I don't know where their stores are concentrated. I, I tried to figure it out from their website and, and couldn't. And so for, for people listening who may not be familiar, um, but there are a bunch of locations here in the Washington, D.C. area. They advertise on radio all the time. And that that really is their advertising strategy. Like this week, it seems like every weekend is a sale weekend. And it's like this weekend only, <clears throat> buy one suit, get three free. And, and that you know the yeah. the sort of thing that makes you think what what are you doing? Yeah, over there? I feel like the the rug store down here in Alexandria and the Joseph Bank um, are using the same PR media agency right. to do their their advertising. Um, this uh, our producer Mac, I mentioned this uh, as we were talking through this, and and the the concern I have with this is it just it ruins your trust the way that they market their clothes. Like Jason said, you want to feel good about going in there buying a suit, and that's really their bread and butter. I think that's where they they talk about like a lack of the suit buyer as a customer versus all the other customers. So if you're really trying to sell a suit, you want to feel good about that, and the fact that you're getting marked up and getting discounted and a whole bunch of other stuff um, just does not really encourage that good well being you want to have. If you're going to plunk down some money for a suit. So, you know, to me, this is a story. I mean, Joseph Bank, the stock, incidentally, had done really well over was, the last like, decade. I was just about to say that, you know, to play devil's advocate. Yeah. 
putting everything we've just said about the yeah. customer experience aside, if you've owned shares of Joseph A. Bank for the last five years or more, you are rolling. Yeah, you are absolutely rolling. Yeah, it I mean is, it's multi-bagger status. I mean yeah. it's done really well for shareholders. And this, but this is very interesting because it, it gets into these this the, this, this uh, question about as companies grow up and they expand their market share, how do they continue to grow their market share? We love finding companies that have the ability to both expand their markets and grow their market share and become more profitable along the way. And that's that's key. We're seeing Joseph A. Bank may have done this for the last eight years, yep. but really over the last two years, it's really struggled to kind of match up its merchandising strategy with what the customer wants. And that's not been good for shareholders. The stock is actually down about 20% over the past year. And included in this statement was a re- reiteration by the part of the company that they expect to open another 45, 50 locations this year. Yeah. It's distinctly possible. I mean, if you look at, I mean, the company itself, they're debt free. They have a, a nice little chunk of change on the balance sheet uh, that they can they, they can spend. I'm sure, however, they really see fit. Uh, what has impressed me is if you just look at their margins over time, these these guys actually maintain like double digit net margins, which I think is a testament to their initial markup strategy. They've done well with it, but I, I share Andy's concern. At some point, they may basically tap that market in and realize they don't have much else much much more growth left in the engine there so you have to wonder about the long-term yeah. strategy there and, and if this might not be sort of a, the beginning of, of uh, some tougher times for yeah them. you tapped out your core market and then maybe that may be it are you in the market for a suit I am in the market for a suit yeah in fact in fact Jamie did order me one um, a Hickey Freeman one um, online so now I got it and the, the, it seemed to fit and now I have to go get it tailored but I've been on a I have been on a suit quest for a week or two here now, and um, I have not gotten into a Joseph Bank, and nor I don't think I will. I'm sorry, and maybe this is just going to show, once again, my incredible ignorance when it comes to clothing. Did you say the name of the suit that she bought was Hickey Freeman? Hickey Freeman. Is that... That sounds like a, a colorful character on oh my a gosh, Faulkner Hickey, novel. No, Hickey Freeman is like <laughs> classic American suit worn okay. by like every president going back, you know, generations. Is it kind of so. like a Johnston and Murphy style? Yeah, or yeah, yeah. I, yeah. See, I know likes, that. It's I love very, that. It's, it's American-made, um, Italian fabric, American-made, that kind of you know thing. And she just likes it, so my wife ordered it for me. Um, but it is like you do see a lot of these, you know, competitive offers, buy this, get this, that kind of thing. And you wonder, is the quality really what I'm buying and the experience? And I have shopped... Um, a, a couple times into a, a Joseph Bank, and um, I just the experience wasn't wasn't great. Always a good strategy, though, to let your wife buy clothes. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's, Especially if you're not pay- if she's paying for it. <laughs> that's a total win every time. Jason Moser, Andy Cross, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and a lot of people may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> Hickey Freeman. Yeah, I never heard of that either, but I, I don't doubt you. I mean, I just Hickey Freeman was, um, yeah, uh, Hart, Schaefer, and Marks. Does that ring a bell? That, those suits? Honestly, uh, nope. the Paul image Biden. in my head is the you know the sheriff saying to his deputy, you know, like going down to the general store, go talk to Hickey Freeman. Like that's <laughs> exactly. that's what I'm picturing. What, uh, what kind of suits do you guys like? A Dukes of Hazard character or something? Do you guys buy all your suits at Joseph Bank? I, you know what? I, I, even, I have not bought a suit in right. like ten yeah, years, I, dude, man. I'm wearing a suit from 1994.